started with a little thing, grew very, very quickly. Uh, the Allied leaders after, uh, with Japan and negotiations with Japan before Hiroshima, they uh, were trying to negotiate peace, trying to get it resolved. And uh, so they sent a communication and the communication came back and a word was mistranslated. It could have been translated no comment. It got translated ignore. That ticked off a few people. Hiroshima, boom, because of a little thing. So little things are powerful things. So today I'm talking about a stick, a stick in the hands of a guy named Moses. Now there are a lot of sticks in the Bible. There was a lady who gathered sticks to prepare her last meal, but Elijah showed up and that last meal lasted a long, long time because, you know, she was picking up sticks on the right day, I guess, I don't know. Paul was picking up sticks after a shipwreck, trying to just help out, got bit by a, a poisonous viper on his hand. And everyone thought he was going to drop dead, but he didn't. And because he didn't drop dead, it gave him an opportunity to bring the kingdom to that little island. And he got a chance to, to bring Jesus to, as a prisoner to that community. Uh, Elijah had a, was it Elijah? No, it was Elisha, I think. One of the Eli guys. We'll stop right there. They were build, I think it was Elisha. Actually, they were building something like a temple or a place of worship. One guy borrowed an axe, dropped it in the river. Elisha cuts a stick, throws it in. The six stick causes the axe to float. I don't get it either, but it's in the Bible, so it's kind of cool. When I was a teenager in Tennessee, we have ice storms. It snows here. Well, it blows here. I mean, it snows up north somewhere and comes here. I don't know how it works. Um, it snows sideways here. How's that? And, uh, but it doesn't, doesn't snow where I grew up very often, but it does ice. And so one, one spring, we got like an inch of ice, and it's snapping trees everywhere. And I got up and went to the backyard. I was about 13 or 14, and I saw all these limbs down. And I wasn't very smart at 13 or 14, unlike our 13, 14-year-olds today. And uh, so I went out to begin to try and gather up the leaves to help my dad out. Of course, when he saw me, you know, working under these trees that are heavily weighted down with an inch of ice, he panicked and tried and saved my life, most likely, and showed me the error of my ways. Uh, but I got a few limbs picked up. My point is, uh, if you're like, I don't think he has one, <laughs> is a lot of times in life we're picking up sticks. Sometimes it's because a storm went through and we're trying to put our life back together. Sometimes it's because we're trying to build a life, a nest, something so we can live. Sometimes we just don't know what else to do. So it seems helpful what we're doing, so we keep doing it. And we don't really know why. So if you're going to move from a place in your life where you, because most of us see our lives way under what God expects them to be, way under what they could be, what, way under your potential. If you're going to move that mindset from a life of sticks, a life of survival, a life of the mundane. Because really, think about it. Most people look at their life as pretty boring and mundane, pretty ordinary. But we know there's nothing ordinary about ordinary. And when you look at your life through the lens of the world in which you live, it can look like that. You know, it's just my job. It's just the laundry. It's just cleaning up after the family. It'll have to be done again next week. It's just my old car. It's just my broken down house. It's just the ache in my back. Whatever. I want to recommend to you that the Christian life, the kingdom life, requires a bit more imagination. And the reason is because of something Jesus said. In Mark chapter 10, there were some children that were trying to get to Jesus. Their parents were bringing them. They wanted Jesus to bless them. The disciples thought the children were annoying, like a lot of folks do. And Jesus said this, Mark 10, 14. Let the children come to me 
don't stop them. Pause. Let the children come to me, don't stop them. And then he breaks it down for them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. Anybody know a Jesus freak? Wow, calm in here. Any, anybody know someone that, I mean, they are like all about Jesus Christ. They're, they're a little crazy. In fact, you don't really like to go places with them because they come off as like, Michael Jr. calls it a little oversaved, you know. <laughs> I used to think those were the nuts, but the more I grow in my faith, the more I realize the nuts are, they're smarter than I am. They get something I don't get sometimes. And so I want to remind you that the kingdom of God, Jesus says, this is, a, this is a place for children. A child at heart, a child's imagination. What does that mean? Well, when I was a kid, until the age of seven, I had the privilege of growing up in the country out on kind of a farm. My uncle's farm, my dad owned the house right next to my uncle's property. And, <coughs> excuse me, and so I had a an old, I don't know if you know it, those old white three-plank fences around the property, and we had an old beat-down shed in the back and, a, and an apple tree that was just huge off to the side, and I had a, a German shepherd, you know. But I was a child, you know, four to seven, I lived on that property. And that, that, that wasn't a German shepherd. That was, that was my trusty steed. It wasn't a dirt clod. It was a grenade, it wasn't a shed. It was a castle that needed to be liberated of demons and dragons, and the princess needed to be set free. There were no sticks. They were swords. They were machine guns. They were bazookas. That's the mind of a child, isn't it? Isn't that the mind of a child? Now you're sitting there. I know what you're thinking. Well, I'm not sure if that's what Jesus meant. You only think that because you're afraid to think otherwise. You're afraid to think that man with a little imagination, with a little of God's heart in me, you know, things could turn out and look very differently in your life. And here's why I say that. One of the main things that stoked my imagination in life has been the Bible. Because I read stories in there and I see rocks on the ground in the Bible that were built into altars. Every rock was just an altar waiting to be built or a giant killer waiting to be launched. Simple rocks but in scripture, they're powerful. A little imagination in God's will and God's power, simple sticks, parted seas, overcame armies and set slaves free. A stick can be a really powerful thing, especially if you begin to realize that the stick in our story is really a life, not just a stick. So let me move into the text. Exodus chapter four Verses 2, my whole background is Exodus 4, 1 through 20. But I'm just going to read verses 2 through 4 and verse 20 to get to the heart of this discussion, this argument really, between God and Moses. The Lord asked Moses, what's that in your hand? A shepherd's staff, Moses replied. Throw it down on the ground, the Lord told him. So Moses threw down the staff. And it turned into a snake. And Moses jumped back, understandably, yes? And then the Lord told him, reach out and grab it by its tail. <laughs> so Moses reached out and grabbed it and turned back into a shepherd's staff in his hand. I just want to jump down to verse 20, the end of the conclusion of the matter. Then Moses took his wife and his sons 
And he put them on a donkey and he headed back to the land of Egypt. And in his hand, he carried the staff of God. Moses and God had a pretty good argument. God wanted Moses to go and be his deliverer. He wanted to set his people free. And a strong case could be made, and I'm not the first one to make it, that that call had been on Moses' life since he was in Egypt and was probably the cause of him trying to fulfill that call in his own strength and murdering a man. So at the age of 40, Moses kills a man trying to do the right thing in the wrong way. But then he spends 40 years in a wilderness. In that wilderness, uh, things changed for Moses. You see, the first question I ask when I come to this story of Moses and God and the discussion about the stick and throwing it on the ground and it becoming a snake is, my first question is this, where where did he get the stick? Where'd it come from? Because he didn't have it in Egypt. He didn't carry a shepherd's staff in Egypt. In Egypt, he was, for all intents and purposes, Moses was an Egyptian in Egypt. You need to wrap your head around that. Yes, he was from Hebrew descent, but he was raised in Pharaoh's house. He thought like an Egyptian. He lived like an Egyptian. He dressed like an Egyptian. One day it dawned on him that he lived in a very cruel world. That's the day when he looks and he sees his people, his, the people that he descended from, in slavery and being oppressed cruelly. And when he saw that, it raised up the Hebrew in him. But understand, that Hebrew was buried under a big pile of Egyptian. And if that image went a little too far, I'm sorry. Buried within that Egyptian is this Hebrew, and so he raises up and tries to become what God had called him to become in a way that was very Egyptian. Because Egyptians were spoiled. They were entitled. They lived lives of luxury built on the backs of slaves. And if you drew any current corollaries to that, good for you. Because I meant for you to do that. So Moses tries to become what God calls him to be in his own strength and in a very Egyptian way, and it doesn't turn out well. And, you know, my thought on this, by the way, I think when Moses killed that Egyptian slave driver, I think he was trying to kill the parts of himself he hated. That's just pure speculation. That's not the word of God. But here's why I think that. He spent his whole life being an Egyptian, and then he realizes that what he is is cruelly oppressing who he truly is. His true identity. And he realizes that he identifies more with his oppressor than he does with his people. And I think the reason he reacted so violently is because he was upset with himself. Now, that's just some assumptions, some things, some some conclusions I'm jumping to, but I just, I just wanted to throw it in there because a lot of times what we do is we see our faults in other people and try to punish them for those faults. And if you'll think about it, you will notice that the thing that bugs you most in your enemies are your weaknesses, if you think about it very long. So I know it's a sobering thought. I know it's not a comfortable thought, But I wanted to give it to you nonetheless and make you uncomfortable. So, Moses goes out in the wilderness. Out in the wilderness, he finds a wife, fathers his children, 
and he learns to raise sheep. Loses his Egyptian accent. I don't know what that is. Probably sounded like Yankee, but Egyptian. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He lost his accent. He lost his entitlement. He lost his pride. He lost his arrogance. In the wilderness, he was freed from his political ambitions. In the wilderness, he learned it was okay to be a husband, to be a dad, and to be a shepherd, which was totally offensive to the Egyptian mindset, I should say. Shepherds were like the bottom of the work pool. Out in the wilderness, he learned that. And somewhere out there, he found this shepherd's staff. And I'm sure it wasn't just a stick he picked up off the ground. I'm sure it was one he picked up and probably carved on it, smoothed it out, curved it, did something to make it more uh, applicable to his situation. But out in that wilderness, he finds this stick, and now this stick is more than just a, a tool. It's more than just a piece of utility in his life to keep sheep from killing themselves. Now it's his vocation. Now it's his job. Men, do we become, do we take on the identity of our vocations? All the time. Isn't that, isn't that what we say? Oh, I'm a miner. I'm a preacher. I'm a plumber. We claim our identities connected to our vocation. So now Moses isn't a leader. He's not a deliverer. He's not an Egyptian. He's, he's a Hebrew, but now he's a shepherd. So his vocation is found in that stick. His identity is found in that stick. Because all his aspirations of leadership and deliverance are gone. He has no, in his mind, he's, he is no longer capable of doing the thing that God called him and equipped him and impassioned him to do. Hang on to that. It's coming back later. The thing that you've been called, equipped, and impassioned to do. And so out in that wilderness, Moses was just a husband, a dad, and a shepherd, and those are good things. And so that stick was his identity. It was his vocation but it had become his crutch. It had become his excuse for not living up to his potential. It's one thing to accept your situation and thrive in it. It's another thing to take your situation and use it as a crutch and excuse yourself from all responsibility. To use your gifts. Your gifts are your talents for sure, but Moses had more than talents. He had training. He had education that he'd been given in Egypt that God gave him for a purpose. And now they're sitting out in a wilderness, rusting away, because he feels like now he can never be what God, God called him to be. I remember as a young man hearing a sermon that, I, that looking back, I feel like the guy was probably trying to do a good thing. But in doing a good thing, in his attempt, he had missed grace so much that he really discouraged people. And in that sermon, he said that whenever you fail for God, you'll never fly as high again. And I get his point. He was trying to use guilt to encourage people to stay holy. It was a good motivation. The problem is this. It's just not true. God uses broken, messed up people. How many murderers? Did God use to be leaders? How many sexually immoral people did God use to bring his son into the world to accomplish great things? So we should not be limited. Our stick cannot be our crutch. So God comes to Moses. 
And he says, what's that in your hand? And so he's looking at that stick. And I, I know I'm putting, I'm using the stick as a metaphor, and I'm doing it because the word of God does it. Because after this session, it's no longer a shepherd's staff. It's the rod of God in the King James, or it's the staff of God at the, in the New Living Translation. The, the stick is more than a stick. Because the stick represents Moses. And so here God is saying to Moses, throw your stick down. <laughs> and Moses does. I mean, that's pretty cool. Obviously, he's at a point in this discussion with God where he's kind of giving up, but not quite yet. And so Moses, God tells Moses, throw your stick down. So Moses does. And then things get really weird. Throws it on the ground. It turns into a snake. And Moses freaks out. I think that's comical. I think that's a hilarious image of, of Moses throwing that down and jumping back. And then I, I see in it the simple truth. Sometimes, uh, maybe all the time, when someone lets go of their life at God's command, they find out that their life takes on a life of its own. Sometimes I think we're afraid of the power that God has in us. I think that's why, I think we live our ordinary lives because it's safe. And if we ever, if we ever come to terms with how powerful God has made us, then we know we're responsible for that power. So Moses throws his life down, his stick down, a metaphor for his life, our metaphor for today, because we're all walking through life our lives with a, a stick that represents who we are and what we do and what we're worth. Right or wrong, that's how we see it. So when he throws it down, he finds out that there's a whole lot more to Moses than meets the eye. Then God gives him another command. First command, throw it down. Second command, pick it up by the tail. Uh, you know, I'm from Tennessee and I know better than that. You don't grab a snake by the tail. You can grab it by the bitey end if you're going to grab it. And where I come from, we just run. <laughs> I mean, I'm not particularly, I mean, I'm way more frightened of spiders, believe it or not, because they can creep up on you in strange places. <laughs> Usually I can see a snake, you know, and I can run, but sometimes they blend in pretty well. So Moses, though, is given a command by God, and so here's the lesson. When God gives you a command, it doesn't have to make sense. You just have to know it's God. And so Moses does. He bends over, picks up the snake. What happens? Turns back into the shepherd's staff. So now we see that Moses has thrown the stick down. He's obeyed God. In a sense, we see surrender. We'll come back to that. But what, he's, what I think is happening here is that Moses is forcing, I mean, God is forcing Moses to face his fears. You see, the, the Moses that Moses knew, did that make sense? The Moses that Moses knew after 40 years in this wilderness was the wilderness version of Moses. It was Moses 1.0. I mean, but Moses, one, I mean, it was Moses 2.0. Moses 1.0 was a jerk. He was an Egyptian, he was entitled, he was not cool. Moses 2.0, he's in the dirt. He, he has no self, he, he sees himself accomplishing nothing. He's like, God can never use me now, okay? Now God's calling him up to Moses 
And, and Moses 3.0 is ready because Moses 2.0 has been humbled. And in that humbled version of Moses, he's just afraid that he can't. Men, you can identify with that, right? Isn't that our greatest fear? A fear that we can't handle it. A fear that we can't do it. That when it all comes down to brass tacks and it's all finished, that we will have failed and it will have been something in us that caused the failure. So when God calls Moses out and says, throw down your stick, this thing that represents your vocation, your identity, your crutch, throw it down, give it up, let it go. And then he tells him to pick it up. He's got to face his own life again, in a sense. And so he picks it up. But now when he picks it up, it's not just a stick now. Now it's the rod of God. That's what the King James called us. And I think that sounds cool. The staff of God, New Living calls it. Now it's not Moses' staff anymore. It's God's staff. Because Moses isn't Moses' own Lord and King now. He's God's man. And because Moses is God's man, his wife, Zipporah, is, is God's woman. And his kids make God's family. And then God, God tells Moses, now, you, you put it down, you pick it up, now you go. Take the stick, the staff, and you go. And so next scene, we see verse 20. Moses, wife, kids, going to Egypt. And I just want you to know, this was not an easy conclusion to get to. It wasn't like God showed up and said, hey, Moses, I want you to go deliver my people. And Moses said, cool, let's go. That's not what happened. There was a long argument, which teaches us something. I've often said, it's not your ability that God uses. It's your availability. And in this lesson, in this we learn another lesson. It's not even your willing availability. Sometimes it's your resistant availability that God uses. Now, I know you're sitting there going, well, yeah, but God really likes people who are easy to get along with. There aren't any of those. There are only stubborn, broken people, and that's what God works with. And so you may be sitting there right now thinking, you probably got some stuff in your head about what God wants you to do in life, and you've been putting it off, you've been afraid of it. I just want you to know, God had plans for Moses' life, and he has plans for your life. He has plans for your life. He wants to do things in your life. So God plans to use your life. So how do we move into like Moses, how do we get to a place where we're no longer afraid of our potential, where we're no longer so discouraged we feel like God can't do anything with us, where we feel like we're too far gone, we've messed up too much, we've failed too often? How do we get out of that and into freedom and into life and into actual power? Well, first thing you got to do is the same thing Moses. you got to surrender your stick. The word you need to remember out of that is the word surrender. There's, surrender is a superpower in the kingdom. When we let things go, turn things over to God, powerful things begin to happen. Now, I also know a lot of us are going through life right now, and we really, because of our situation, our troubles, the, the wounds, the insults, the hurts, all the things that are going on, we really kind of hit a point, most of us in life, where we just want to be left alone. Let me go do my job. Let me get my days off, enjoy my weekends. Let, let me just survive and leave me alone until I die. 
in peace somewhere with a remote control in my hand watching a cool action movie. I don't know. I just threw that in there. Let me punch the clock, do my chores, get the day off, take a vacation. Here's the problem. When you became a child of God, you signed all that away. When you became a child of God, when you started by trusting Jesus, you signed away, spoke away, confessed away that life that just wanted to be left alone. Say amen. Amen. By the way, do you really want what Egypt has to offer, if I could carry that analogy a little further? Really? Young people? I know it's maybe hard to imagine. When I was your age, I couldn't imagine it. But the luxuries of Egypt, and by extension, the consumerism of American life, it's built on the backs of slaves still today. That cheap stuff that we buy has a high cost in other countries often. And is that really what you want? Really just want to want that? Don't, you don't want. You don't want that entitlement of Egypt. You don't want all those things. And I think that's why we're hitting such a, a, what do you call this time in history? It's beyond controversial. Polariza- polarizing. I mean, I think there are generations realizing they've been sold a lie. A generation at a time. And each generation a different lie. And, and, and now they realize that the lie is a lie and somebody needs to do something about it. And they don't know what to do. So it's creating, it's creating chaos in every generation in every way. It's not, a, it's not an exciting time in regard to that, but that's okay. Because you're not really part of all that. Did, did you know that? The, the day you started by trusting Jesus, you stopped being from here. I'm not saying that we shouldn't speak out about things that are right and wrong. Oh, we should. Someone should speak out and protect the innocent. But whether or not it thrives or burns really has no bearing on us. Because sooner or later... And the closer you get to heaven, sooner it looks better. You're going to be out of here. And this mess ain't your problem. Excuse my grammar, but I was making a point. And also, ain't sounds good through my lips. <laughs> Just kidding. Just All the grammar teachers in the room freaked out right there. Victory begins when you throw down your stick, when you surrender your life. You want free of Egypt? Because the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt. They were on the bottom end of the the slave scale. The Egyptians were also slaves in Egypt. They just happened to be the ones, slaves to comfort, slaves to the Joneses, slaves to status. It's still slavery. It's just a different position on the slide. Do you want to be free? Well, then you, the, the way to be free is actually surrender, throwing down your stick of your life. I was, uh, Christy and I were in Florida several weeks ago, month and a half, I don't know, like two months ago now. And we were, uh, we had gotten a rental car for the day, we were headed down to the Keys, we were going to see what that was all about, and, and I was listening to the radio, I don't know if it was just a radio station or, or something, but I was, there was a professor on there and he was talking about um, privilege in America and all these kinds of things. And it was annoying, but I was trying to listen because I try to learn, I'm not good at it, but I try. I try. 
<laughs> and he was talking about, and, and I won't go into all, there were several racial tones to what he was talking about, but I, I won't go into that. But he simply pointed out that in America, people feel like that wherever they are, it's their space. And if you're in their space, they're allowing you to be in their space until you get annoying and then they want you out of their space. And we've hit a point in history where people are too cowardly to say, hey, I don't like what you're doing. Now they just call the cops on you and get to try and get you arrested. It's a weird time in history. People used to have some nerve and backbone and they'd just speak up, but not anymore. But that's a personal problem I'm having with my neighbor, not you. <laughs> just kidding. <clears throat> I think how uh, my older children said it you know, six or seven years ago was people feel like it's my world and you're just living in it. That's kind of the way we think, though, if we were honest with ourselves. So I disagree with a lot of the things the guy was saying, but the tone he hit was correct. We tend to act like that it's our world and we're just letting people take up space. We're, try we're trying to let them, but then they cut us off in traffic and we're like, ah! <laughs> or they, they, you know, they take too long at the, the buffet and, you know, and we get angry. And so I learned as I was preparing for this message, I realized that every time I get angry, God is pointing at a place I need to surrender. I don't know if that hurt you like it did me, but that's I'm like, great, thank you, Lord. Now I have to be nice when I drive. Ugh. Are you a Christian? That's the question. I'm not asking you to respond. I'm just saying, are you a Christian? If you're a Christian, well, let me help you with some ideas here. Straight out of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Don't you realize that your body, your body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Some of us are big temples and some of us are little temples. I'm, I'm just trying to give God lots of space. That's what's happening up here. Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Okay? That's New Testament. You have to, you have to listen to it. Okay? <laughs> Romans 14, one more. We don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. If we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. We need to get that as followers of Christ, as those who've begun by trusting Jesus, we need to get that in perspective. Trusting Jesus removes the rights that I think I have off of my life and moves me into the responsibilities of freedom. It moves me into a place of responsibility where I am a temple of God. I am not my own. I don't live for me and I don't die for me. That's the Christian worldview. And I know that's not a worldview that's talked about a lot when people talk about Christians. There are a lot of other things that people like to point out about Christians. In fact, they, they like to identify us by the things that they think we stand against. But the truth is simply this. As Christians, I am not my own. I, surrender is key to Christian life. So surrender your stick. Two, face your fear. Face your fear. Fear tends to define us. We tend to be known by and identify ourselves by the things that we're afraid of, by our worries, by our anxieties. God says, Moses, throw your stick down, turns into a snake. He runs. He did not know 
what that stick could be when God had a hold of his stick, when God had control, when the stick was surrendered to God through a simple, very simple act of obedience. So now Moses takes that stick, and I'm sure he's a little leery of it from that point on. Wouldn't you be? I mean, every time he dropped it. (laughs) And he goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. And he doesn't do it. Pharaoh kind of scoffs at him, and so Moses throws that stick down. And it does exactly what he knew it would do. Turns into a snake. Well, Pharaoh's not easily scared. He is bought into some Egyptian lies. And lies run deep by many layers often. And so his own priests, liars, they're able to appear to do the same thing. Throw down their staffs. They turn into snakes. Makes you wonder why God chose the snake to go against the snakes. It wasn't like God didn't know what was going to happen. So Moses throws his down, turns into a snake. The, the priests of Egypt throw theirs down, they turn into the snake. What happens? The Bible tells us that Moses' snake ate their snakes. Yes, because fear is a liar. And that's what happens to a surrendered life. You surrender your stick, and your life will start devouring lies. The things you believe, you're going to start waking up and realizing that so many of them aren't true. You're going to start looking at the world in which you live and realize it's filled with untruths designed, literally designed to tear you down and keep you weak and keep you from doing anything with your life. The truth is, this might be worth writing down, I don't know. The truth is, in this life, you have nothing to fear apart from a life surrendered from God to God. Surrender your life to God. There's nothing left to be afraid of. Because you put the fear fighter, the power of God on your side. The second thing, or the next thing I'd like you to see out of that is that Moses, even though he was afraid, afraid of what he could be, afraid of failure, he eventually stepped out in faith to save his people. And I wish I could get that idea driven home for us. That there are people in your world, your oikos, your community. Sorry, oikos, a Greek word, just means community. There are people in your world that you are here to save. You ever get that, you ever wonder that question? Some of you guys, maybe you're, you know, have a few years following Christ yourself and you, had that thought, why doesn't Jesus just save us and zap us out of here? First of all, that would make some freaky revivals. Are you ready to get saved? Yes, I am. Poof. Oh, man. Jeez, where'd he go? <laughs> I'm sorry, I have a strange imagination. I, it's a child, she'll leave them. <laughs> Moses went to save his people. And you have people in your life to save. It might be your flock. They might be your family, their children, your wife, your husband. It might be your friends. Some of you and, and many of you, God's going to call to engage in a larger battle. There are homeless that need saved. There are hungry that need fed. There are those imprisoned and oppressed, those who are enslaved. I don't know who God has you here to save, but I know you're here to save someone. God's going to use you in that way. And when we surrender our lives and they begin to devour the lies, 
put that stick of our existence into God's hands, things happen. What happened to the rod of God? Well, it stood up to Pharaoh. It parted a Red Sea. It overcame an army of Amalekites. It got rock to, and water to come out of this rock that Paul tells us was a symbol and a picture of Jesus Christ taking care of his people. That staff, and it's probably the staff that budded and ended up in the Ark of the Covenant. And so that staff went a long way. But what, because Moses was awesome? <laughs> Moses was not awesome. But he did surrender. And when he surrendered, and it was a hard surrender, when he surrendered, God set people free. And you know the first person he set free? Moses. Because the first person I got to be free of is me. Seriously, how many of us are trapped by the confines of our own mind and belief system? And when God begins to tear those things down in our life and show us what he can do in a life that is surrendered to him. In fact, Paul said it this way in Ephesians 2.10. You are God's masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece, not his Crayola pick on the fridge. You're his masterpiece. And he's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So, surrender. Face your fear. That's courage. And lastly, I want to say, remember, you're just a stick. Like, oh, bummer. A lot of people, God uses, and they end up on a pedestal. The problem with being on a pedestal is while it holds you up for others to see, it also holds you up for the enemy to zing darts at you. And if you're on a pedestal, you got to be protected by God which isn't going to happen if you become proud and he pulls back from you. And so don't become proud because I envision God using a lot of folks in this room. But I've seen a lot of great men on pedestals fall in my lifetime. And there's usually one or two every year. And it breaks my heart because one, there's only one guy who deserves to be on a pedestal, right? His name's Jesus Christ. He did a cross instead of a pedestal. He earned the right. Everyone else is just a dude or a girl. They're just someone that God used. They're just a stick. And what makes a stick awesome is not the stick. It's the altar you lay it on. Jesus said that in Matthew 23. He said it's not the gift on the altar that you should swear by or promise by. He was telling these arrogant Pharisees and scribes this. He says it's the altar that makes the gift holy. I believe in holiness from the bottom of my heart. The word of God says without holiness you will not see God. But what makes us holy? Well, you don't make you holy. You can only be an offering set on an altar that makes you holy. That's why I talk about surrender so often. It is the act of surrender, the continued preference of surrender, that puts us in a place where God can use us and makes our lives powerful. It's not how hard you work, but where your life is resting on the altar of God. Honey, could you write that down? Because I think God just... <clears throat> Sometimes I don't know what I'm going to say. Ask my wife. What I would like you to do with that is this. I speak of surrender. So surrender, yes. But stop trying to be amazing in your own strength. 
And I want to point this out because of the world in which I live. I live in a world that is famous for saying, and I've said it myself with good intentions, you can be anything you want to be. You heard that? You can be anything you want to be. Well, the problem with that is this. If you choose to be something that, God, that is different from what God chooses for you, then what you want to be now moves in rebellion against God. You can't live in rebellion against God. You can't live in power and in the kingdom in rebellion against God. And you cannot go to heaven in rebellion against God. Do you understand that? So my point is this. Michael, are you saying you cannot be anything you want to be? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. What I am saying is God has larger plans for you than anything you can imagine. Your wildest dreams for you, if accomplished, will be a fraction of what God would accomplish through your life if you simply surrendered to him. Stop trying to be amazing because you're already amazing. Why? Because Jesus lives in you and he's amazing. Right? Jesus Christ came back, lives in you, he's amazing. That's life. Okay, let's do that together. Jesus is amazing. Sometimes we need a coach to get it all together. I get it. You're already amazing because Christ is in you. So you don't have to try anymore. You don't have to strive anymore. The hard work of the, the Christian is that of surrender and simple obedience. That, that's, that's the hard work of it. But I'm telling you, it's powerful work. One of, one of my favorite stories, well, okay, the whole Bible's my favorite book, so there's, one of my, there's a cool story in there. It's in, the, it's in the books of Ezra, Haggai, and Zechariah. So when you're reading the Old Testament, by the way, you should always remember that the prophets often overlap the, the historical narratives of the, that you're reading. So the book of Ezra is a historical book. There's some boring parts because it has a census in it. But it also has some really cool parts. And then Zechariah and Haggai are the prophets speaking at that time period in the book of Ezra. Okay, so Old Testament survey, I'll line that out for you and help you put all that together. But anyway, in those three books, you have the story of the temple being rebuilt. The temple had been destroyed. Babylon had come, raised it to the ground, ended it, 70 years in captivity. Now Ezra, or not Ezra, he comes along later, but they're brought back. People are brought back to him. No, maybe it was Ezra. Anyway, they're brought back. Then they, God puts them there to build a temple. They lay the foundation. Then they get freaked out for 15 years. And then God sends prophets says, finish building my house. So they do. They come together. They build the house. Now, at this moment in history, there are two, two generations specifically present. There is a senior generation that were uh, deported from Israel. And they remembered the former temple. And then there are the generations that were born in Babylon that had no point of reference for the temple. So you had a generation who knew what they lost and another generation who had no idea what they lost. So the day comes that they celebrate the temple, they have, that it's completed. And at this thing, you hear a wailing. The Bible tells us there's a wailing that goes up before the Lord. And the wailing is a combination of joy and sorrow. The ones who knew what had been lost are wailing in sorrow and weeping. And the ones who saw a new beginning in the temple are praising God and wailing in joy. But it's all blended together. It could be heard for miles away. Now think about that for a second. Because the prophet Zechariah comes and speaks to that specific moment 
In Zechariah 4, verse 6, and he says this. This is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. He was the dude that was officially in charge. It's not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Okay? But that's, I wanted to set that up with you because I wanted you to see that God's telling Zerubbabel and the nation of Israel that the temple was built by God's Holy Spirit moving in the people, not by the people's strength. But then I want you to see verse 10 of Zechariah 4. This is important. God says to Zerubbabel, uh, Zechariah actually, do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Then he goes on to say, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. And I know that sounds like a strange phrase. What I wanted to share, the reason I wanted to share this picture with you, I wanted you to see, and hopefully I've done that, I want you to see a new temple, but it's a meager, it's a poor man's temple compared to what used to be. And there's a generation alive at this point in history who knows what they've lost and it breaks their heart. But there's also a generation alive who knows that now there is new hope. There is now potential for worship and for God's presence again, where for 70 years there was none of that. And so there's, there's despair and hope in the same moment, and then God speaks into it, and he says, I love this. I love this simple little shack of a temple you built because I love beginnings. And I love the plumb line in your hands, Arubel, because the plumb line is about truth, man. It's not, it's not how big you begin. It's about beginning in truth. It's about doing it right, not just doing it. But it's not about how big you do it. It's about how true you do it. Did that make sense? It's about how true you do a thing. I share that with you because of this. I'm just a stick. You're just a stick. Just a stick found who knows where. Me on, the, in a, on a little country farm in Tennessee. Some of you guys on a, a back hill in Wyoming or whatever. You're just a stick. But a stick in the hand of God is a powerful thing. And it doesn't matter how small your first steps are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it looks like in the beginning as long as it, it's truth. It's, it's God's word. It's love. It's faith. It's faithful. It can start really messy, I've learned. Messy is kind of a word we use at Ordinary Faith a lot. And even though it may start that way, God loves it. So, Exodus chapter 4, verse 20. Moses, the friend of God he would come to be known as, is headed to Egypt. And all he has in his possession, aside from his wife, who tolerates him, you could see that if you read the story yourself, and his children who don't get it, is one guy with a stick and a stutter going to take over Egypt. Who won? The armies of Egypt or the guy with the stick and the stutter? Guys, in this room, there are people with sticks and stutters. The devil is always trying to make us think that our greatest gifts are our greatest setbacks. He's always trying to trick us so that we see the things that we're strong in as our weaknesses. 
I don't know what God's equipped you to do, but I know it's a lot more than you think. And in this room, there are men and women and children who God will send forth to set people free. You can set people free. I can set people free. Let's pray. Father, I have no way to articulate how powerful you are in us. And I don't know the dreams in this room that you have given your children. I've heard some. Some of them are just huge and terrifying to think. Some some dreams and passions that people have for freedom for others, they just seem impossible. But my whole Bible is built on impossible. And I know that the Christian faith is all about victory over the impossible. Lord, I, I, I pray that you raise up a sense of your presence right now. Pray that you help men and women and children realize that they didn't just come to church today. They came to meet with God. And as you walk among us, as your spirit settles over us, as Jesus goes down each aisle, would you touch lives and give them hope again? Many feel like they have gone too far, failed too much. They're too weak. Whatever. There are a thousand possible phrases that might capture someone's heart, and I cannot think of them all. But you, Holy Spirit, know every, every crutch. You know every lie. And Lord, would you speak freedom to your kids? Yes, they were broken, but now they are reborn. Yes, they are, we're sinners, but now Jesus has saved them and given them a new heart. Also, Lord, that you love them and you love to forgive them. Lord, I know you love to forgive us. I know it. So, Lord, I pray as you walk among your kids that you would allow us to turn to you and surrender our stick, our lives. Send us out of here, Lord, a people that are surrendered and obedient. A people that realize that the propaganda of the world in which we live just isn't true. And that those who can really bring freedom and life and protect the innocent and set those free are people who have Jesus in them. And Lord, that we would go out of this place to be Jesus in our world. Surrendered to be like Christ. Fearless, no longer afraid of what people think of us, no longer afraid of how we might be misunderstood or misconstrued. Jesus was. But Lord, afraid rather that we not obey you, that we take up our own stick and and try and do it in our own strength again. I pray, Lord, that you just settle on this place of the spirit of surrender, I guess. Thanks, Lord. In Jesus' name. I'm going to have folks available to pray with you.